Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes of the restaurant industry? I'm Katie Osuna, the host of Copper and Heat, the James Beard award-winning podcast that explores the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. Each episode is a narrative deep dive asking questions like, why do we tip? Why are restaurants so financially precarious? Why are tasting menus a thing? And what do restaurant awards really say about what's good? Hear from chefs, restaurant workers, food anthropologists, and more. Find Copper and Heat wherever you listen. I'm Jerusha Klemperer, the host of What You're Eating, a podcast from foodprint.org. We're back this fall with all new episodes to help you understand how your food gets to your plate and see the full impact of the food system on animals, planet, and people. We'll continue to uncover problems with the industrial food system and offer examples of more sustainable practices, as well as practical advice for how you can help create a better world through the food that you buy and the system changes you push for. Have you been wondering why people are drinking oat milk instead of cow's milk? Or curious how you're supposed to choose which eggs to buy when there are so many to choose from? Or frustrated by the amount of plastic packaging your food comes in? Or wondering what labels to look for to know which food is best for the environment? From practical conversations with farmers and chefs to discussions with policy experts on the barriers to a just and sustainable food system, What You're Eating covers everything from the why to the how. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along every other week for new episodes and more answers to the questions you have about what you're eating. A taste of place, of time, of space, of memory. How do we find a way to belong, a way to look to the past and to build a future? My name is Dr. Anna Sulan-Mussing, and I hope to answer those questions as we explore taste and memory throughout this series. Welcome to Taste of Place, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. In this episode, An Imagined Past, we delve into how food, nostalgia, and nationalism all interplay with each other. We also have the pleasure of cooking a few dishes with Pam Brunton, who is chef and owner of Inver Restaurant in Scotland on Loch Fine. As Pam guides us through recipes, she also teaches us about an idea she coined, landscape cuisines. Scotland has always had a special meaning to me, but one that feels distant and almost exotic. My mother was born and bred in New Zealand, but her grandparents came from Scotland as small children in the 1880s as part of a migration flux that lasted between 1840s through to the 1970s. These migrants consisted mostly of those from working-class backgrounds, farmers and tradespeople. I know that these ancestors of mine were very religious and came to New Zealand to work hard and build new livelihoods. My great-grandfather worked, saved and bought a farm, then died in the influenza epidemic. His wife and son, my grandfather, moved to the city and sold the farm. My grandfather eventually bought land in Wellington and built a shop called Family Clothing. It was almost like a mini neighbourhood department store with a haberdashery and sold items from underwear to school uniforms. It had a safe built into the floor, and my mother loved that shop. From my mother's side, I come from the Henderson and McLennan clans from Scotland. Crossing bodies of water, 
Traveling and building home in new places is an act that goes back far in my heritage. Nostalgia, by definition, is a yearning for the return of a past, of a time in history. It is also a longing for home, such as homesickness. It was coined in the 1600s to describe anxiety expressed by Swiss mercenaries fighting away from home. It is often triggered by a smell, a taste, a conversation, and is remembering happy times, but there is sadness. It can be bittersweet, it can affect feelings of belongingness. The word is a combination of the Greek word nostos, meaning homecoming, a Homeric word algos, meaning sorrow or despair. Nostalgia is a longingness. This longing for home is one that those in diaspora feel as well as those in places of home and origin. To understand nostalgia is to understand the places you are in and the histories your story is involved in. So the Scottish side of my history is one that I don't know much about, but it sits in my mind as a landscape, a place of hills, mist, water, and mystical creatures. It feels like a place of magic, one of warriors. It is hard not to have an idea of Braveheart in my understanding of Scotland. It also feels far away, even though it is on the same landmass that I live on now. Scottish missionaries are also large figures in my family story, although they occupy a hazy form, as they are the reason my father was who he was. As many in Sarawak were, he was educated by Scottish missionaries in the interior, a school with a roof and no walls, where he spent six months at a time away from home. He fished, gardened, and grew his own vegetables from the age of six. Dropped off by his mother with a big bag of rice, only a pair of shorts held up by a belt of looped-together rubber bands. None of this was unusual for the indigenous community in the 1950s in Sarawak. The missionaries schooled my dad, they were responsible for conversion to Christianity, and they gave him the name James, making his Iban name Jamut, a secondary one. I'm on my way to Scotland to meet Pam Brunton, chef-owner of Inver, a restaurant known for its superb food and sustainable practices. To get to Inver, to this corner of Loch Vine, was a four-hour train from London to Glasgow and an hour-and-a-half drive in a car. It was across hills and valleys, an abundance of green at this time of the year, lusciousness, fields flush of purple, perhaps heather, a plant I associate in my imagination with Scottish wilds, but Google tells me it's bell heather or bluebells. It reminds me of New Zealand, of course, but the shape and the rhythm of the landscape is also reminiscent of Sarawak. Bodies of water weave throughout the terrain. At the restaurant, Pam cooks for me two dishes that use pepper. A classic Scottish combination of turnip and black pepper in a classic dish, a broth, followed by wild pepper, a close cousin of the pepper we're speaking about in this series, Pepper Negrum, in a dessert. Although the restaurant wasn't open for lunch, the staff were busy all around us in the kitchen and in the foyer of the restaurant. My name's Pam Brunton and we are at Inver Restaurant sitting in the foyer, which overlooks the shores of Loch Fine, Lachlan Bay. And directly across from me, there's the old castle Lachlan. What are you cooking? Turnip broth, which is, I mean, the turnips, uh, we were talking about them earlier. They're a very iconic Scottish vegetable, originally introduced into the country as animal feed. But the wealthier landowners reserved them for their sheep up north in Scotland where the land was much poorer and the people were much poorer. 
we ate them as a vegetable. So I'm very fond of using them. One, they're very tasty, but I also kind of like that kind of a history as well. And I like to glorify things that have had maybe not such an honorable past. I'm very interested in making humble ingredients delicious rather than just relying on the luxury ones. So this is turnip broth, which we make by juicing a whole bunch of turnips, basically. We blend them with some water and then squeeze all that liquid out and then cook that with chicken stock. You know, if you want to talk about Scottish nostalgia foods, I think of mashed turnips. Neeps, that's what I associated with haggis, neeps and tatties. You know, that's pretty classic. We do serve it in the restaurant. We make it and serve it occasionally in the restaurant as well. Just a very contemporary presentation. It's not the kind of school dinners type blobs. Just to confirm, you heated the soup, then the pork fat with the infused pepper goes in. It's just melted and then dribbled on top of it. An important principle in my cooking is that kind of separation of flavours you get. So rather than infusing the pepper into the turnip broth, if you float it on top in the vehicle of a fat or an oil, you will get the hit of the pepper and you will also taste the turnip itself as well. So you get a more vivid impression of both. I guess a bit of like the black and the white next to each other, that kind of contrast. So the wild pepper, why did you decide to use that? Because it's delicious. I mean, mostly because a colleague used to like using it a lot, he used to put it on his eggs a lot. I'm always curious about new ingredients and I started using it myself and I really enjoy that it's a pepper and people don't expect to find pepper in their puddings. As well as the kind of peppery elements to it, it's got a lot of clove and cinnamon and allspice kind of notes to it as well. So it's perfectly at home being served in a, well, salt and pepper apple pie is its other application that we did last year. And I'm, I'm fond of using it as a beignet or donut spice as well. What do you think it brings to a sweet dish? Like you were talking before about contrast, is it similar? Yeah, absolutely. It's that kind of pepperiness does. It takes people's minds to a slightly more savoury space, maybe. Although it really is as relevant in sweet as any of the other kind of sweet spices. I think it's just one of these things that helps people engage with the food. It's a bit more interesting. It makes people think. I sat down with Pam in the foyer of the restaurant away from the kitchen to talk a little bit more in depth about her philosophy and approach to cooking. I met Pam for the first time in Norway in 2021 when she gave a keynote talk at a symposium called Arctic Mass. I had known of Pam's food for a few years and I remember reading a piece that she wrote at the beginning of the pandemic in the Vittles newsletter about capitalism in restaurants. At the symposium, Pam spoke about an imagined past and how the stories we know of ourselves are created for various reasons, and which means we have the power to tell new stories. Her perspective is focused on Scotland, but the questions she asks and interrogates can be universally applied. Pam is currently writing a book exploring these ideas through a philosophy that she has coined Landscape Cuisine, which is about investigating our personal landscape, which encompasses the literal landscape around you as well as your historical and personal histories. The notion of personal landscape came about through exploring what a landscape cuisine might be. That idea, those two words put together, landscape cuisine, came about through a conversation with a photographer called Susan Bell. We were discussing how she would like to take some photographs and perhaps I would do some words to go along with it. That book never happened, but it was um, through an interesting conversation that we started talking about landscape cuisines and an idea of localism. 
not just as an environmental response to food miles, but as an idea of connecting people to where they're from, to their own stories, to the landscape around them and the kind of health and social and environmental benefits that might come out of all of that. And when I started thinking about what that actually meant, the most obvious starting point is, is natural landscapes. If you look out the window here, you can see we are surrounded by some pretty stunning scenery the kind that has sold Scotland on chocolate boxes and calendars all over the world. The whisky marketing <laughs> drive relies heavily on the hills and the mountains and the lochs and the old castles and all the rest to, to paint this picture of Scotland that resonates with Scottish diaspora and whisky lovers and farmed salmon lovers the, the world over. But then I started thinking, well, how much of this is actually real? And how much of this is a made-up story? Because what, what you actually look at when you look out that window is spruce forests that were planted for money due to government incentives in the 1960s and 70s. These are monocultures. They have all the inherent problems that monocultures do. They have suppressed the growth of certain species. They have suppressed biodiversity. And they have turned deer, who or a, a certain kind of deer, um, the red deer, into basically a plague across Scotland. You know, people have romantic notions about stags' heads and shooting and game estates and all the rest. But actually, these are mismanaged natural landscapes that have had a lot of detrimental effects on biodiversity, on communities, on natural landscape all over the country. The iconic Scottish grouse, for instance, which is romanticised every 12th of August. Fancy restaurants in London have it all over their menus. Grouse moors are terribly badly managed. The grouse eat the shoots of young heather, so to promote the growth of these little shoots, uh, grouse moor managers will burn the entire moor. If we go back a couple of centuries to when the Victorians first cottoned on to Scotland as a, a playground for wealthy royals and their associates from down south, and to be honest, we don't need to pitch it as an England versus Scotland thing. It's very much a rich versus poor thing. Aristocracy, the remainders of the kind of clan heads that were still ensconced here, as much a part of it as Londoners and royals. But, you know, Queen Victoria and Albert bought Balmoral Estate and from there, with the coming of the railways, suddenly the, the Highland Scotland became a romantic destination for holidays and shooting became a big part of, of what they did, the recreation. But in setting up shooting estates so that there was plenty deer and grouse and all the rest of the game birds for people to shoot, they had to suppress the predators of the game birds meaning that foxes, stoats, martens, eagles, golden eagles, white-tailed eagles, sea eagles, osprey were all decimated. So the romantic idea of Scottish landscapes and the noble stag and shooting and stalking and being close to nature is already a manipulated image. That got me thinking too, well, if all of these stories are just kind of made up, essentially, for whatever purpose, whether we're trying to promote grouse or whiskey or uh, tourism in Scotland or whatever it is. What other stories could we be telling? And, you know, how far-reaching actually is this? Is this all of history? Is this all of human endeavour? That history is written by the winners is true in microcosm as well as the big events. Whether it's a feud in your family, whoever's come out on top in that is the one that gets to carry on telling the story of the right and the wrong that happened. And so from that, we started thinking about natural landscapes and then also got into, well, what, what does that actually mean for your own personal, your personal landscape, your own imaginative history, your family history, where they've come from, the stories that you hear growing up during childhood that feed into your own identity. And of course, because we are actually talking about food, the foodstuffs that carry those stories as well. I'm Teju Adisa Farrar, the host of Black Material Geographies, a podcast committed to using Black people 
as a lens to understand the material cultures of our present and the possibilities for more sustainable futures. Part of Whetstone Radio Collective, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. It is fascinating to think about the beautiful landscapes of Scotland as being manipulated to be a commodity in itself. We can understand Scotland as a producer of venison or whiskey, all of which are sold to us in part because of a sense of wilderness. But to realise that the actual landscape, with its woods and lochs and wildlife, is a commercial endeavour for the wealthy and the elite is jarring. In fact, Pam told me that very little of Scotland is actually owned by Scottish people. It frames this paradise as a tourist destination, devoid of people and labour. It's a familiar feeling that reminds me of Sarawak and its pepper. With the romance that Sarawak pepper gets sold as, has the same effect of creating the space of Borneo as an exotic destination to visit, a place to get a taste of without engagement. The global south, as a space, becomes a commodity for the consumers in the global north. I ask Pam how she connects with bigger historical themes with personal histories and how she incorporates all of that into her cooking. What we say we do at Inver is modern Scottish cooking, which is kind of a huge statement. When I started writing the book that's about a landscape cuisine between two waters, it was all about exploring what I meant by that. Because, you know, I am Scottish and I am cooking in Scotland and I do draw on traditional Scottish recipes, uh, some of which were cooked by my grandmother when I was a child in that classic cook's tale. But also I am aware that Scotland itself is not a theme country. We have things that are not told as the part of the story abroad with the hills and the mountains and the stag's heads and the leaping salmon. There is more to us than just that, especially these days. For the last two or three centuries, we have had populations in Scotland from India, from Bangladesh, from Pakistan, from China. There's a big, well-established Chinese population in Glasgow, as well as from Iran, Poland. In the cities, it's easy these days to find food from all of those countries and to find it in supermarkets. And I myself am fairly well-travelled. I've lived abroad. I have a curiosity about the world. And to present something I was going to call modern Scottish food, but exclude all those influences, seemed erroneous at best, deceitful at worst, and dishonest, um, and certainly not a representation of me. If I were to cook food that was all about turnips, barley, lamb, whiskey, I would actually be cooking some something that excluded a big part of me and my own experience and my own interest in flavour combinations and learning techniques and ingredients abroad and bringing them back. And then you extrapolate that to the kind of country as a whole and you start thinking, well, is that how I want Scotland to present itself to the world? Insular, backward-looking, tradition-only, no way of integrating the rest of the world into what we do and moving forward with it. That wouldn't be a fair representation of what Scotland is because we're actually quite a progressive, creative country with trade and social links across the globe. We are a hospitable people who like new influences fantastic example in 2020 when the Home Office descended on an immigrant couple in a street in Glasgow where my friends actually happened to live and everyone in the street turned out to like bar them from entering the house because these people were welcome, they were their neighbours and the Home Office had no right to go in and remove them. In 2021, two men were apprehended in a dawn raid by the UK Immigration Enforcement. They were Muslim men and this incident happened during Eid al-Fitr, the marking of the end of Ramadan. But the van holding the men were not able to leave the street as local residents surrounded the vehicles in protest. 
At the end of the day, they were released to cries of, you messed with the wrong city. Scotland has a reputation of resistance, and although they didn't win independency during the referendum in 2014, it has a real sense of difference from England and the rest of UK. This idea is most famously told through the stories of William Wallace, but can be seen today with its separate governing decisions and systems, such as the fact that undergraduate education is still free for Scottish people. So that's the kind of Scotland I want to present, inclusive. But if you look back historically as well, there are trends in Scottish food and cooking that have always been like that. They have always accepted influence from abroad. Of course, colonialism is the elephant in the room when you start talking about produce from abroad. And of course, there's the whole dark history of the rise of capitalism and with it colonialism and the British East India Company and all the dubious histories therein. And I wanted to be able to talk about all that, you know, use ingredients and acknowledge what had brought them here, the other families, the other histories that had brought them to us. Part of talking honestly about colonialism is having these rich conversations, as Pam mentions, on how the exchange of goods and cultures shaped places, spaces and people. As people, produce and plants moved across the world Landscapes were changed forever. We get to enjoy the deliciousness of those exchanges, but we can do that whilst acknowledging the past. These paths of movement are especially relevant to Pam and shaped her as a person and a cook. My mother was born in Zimbabwe. Her parents very tragically died in a plane crash when my mum was 11 and her elder brother was 13. They were actually on their way, they were emigrating back to Scotland. The kids had been sent on ahead uh, with their grandmother. My mum and her brother, Uncle Gordon, were brought up by their grandmother. So there was a kind of skipped generation in, in the sort of progression that you get through families. And when I was growing up, their grandmother, my great-grandmother, lived with us for a number of years. She was in her 90s. So I remember being part of, you know, as well as the kind of Findus Crispy Pancakes and Linda McCartney lasagnas and potted hoch fresh crowdy cheese and lemon curds and the, the things that Gran used to make, traditional Scottish things that were always around. There's a lot of family stories um, to tell that have been handed down to me through the food that we eat as well as the photographs. So that is my kind of personal landscape and it's, it's all relevant. Good cooking is all about connection, storytelling, seeking acceptance and communication with other people, be it the, the family and friends you're cooking for or the guests in the restaurant. These were my stories, and I wanted to find ways of telling them. For Pam, food becomes a tangible way to discuss the past and our relationship with nostalgia. I grew up in New Zealand very much aware and treated as being Asian, but of course, that was only part of who I was. It was often a surprise when people met my white mother, the very picture of the Scottish ideal, pale skin, light eyes and dark hair. So although the world treated me as other, I also knew I was white. And the identity of being Scottish in particular was something that was very much a part of that whiteness. This is because New Zealand is a relatively young country and most people can trace their heritage back to, quote unquote, the old country and still have family roots within the United Kingdom. And therefore, it is a topic spoken about a lot, which is, of course, a nostalgia and a romanticism too. My mother's parents died before I was born, so the Scottish identity is present, but in a somewhat dream or imagined state for me. I felt a real kinship with Pam's Scottish diaspora identity. Hearing Pam talk about her family's stories gave me a yearning for what I knew existed, but I was not a part of. This trip to Scotland very much felt like a search of my Scottish side. 
I asked Pam about her own relationship with nostalgia. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I'm a nostalgia skeptic. Just because of that idea of what is it you're nostalgic for exactly. To me, like particularly in being Scottish, nostalgia and nationalism are a very closely entwined thing. And my experience of nostalgia is being abroad and thinking of home. It's that kind of thing. Some of it's just the intimate, personal, you know, I want to be at home, I want mum to make this thing for me, and um, that kind of thing. But there's also, I remember watching, when I was, I spent the last year of high school in um, the United States, uh, a high school in Utah, as an exchange student. It was the year that the film Braveheart came out. I watched it in the cinema in America, and it did make me feel nostalgic for and homesick and, and all the rest, even though it's a complete fabrication. Although I miss my friends and family, I don't remember a feeling of, like, you know, missing being part of an identity that that, that film kind of provoked. So much of our conversation was looking at this idea of what traditional Scottish cooking is. And so many of the dishes linked to a national Scottish identity uses spices that are from and grown outside of Scotland. This paradox demonstrates the inextricable links British cuisine has to its imperial roots and complicates the message of eating local that many restaurants in the global north like to tout. I ask Pam how she reconciles these ideas in her cooking. So I guess the way I see it is just as, as Scotland is, uh, if you're going to be um, honestly reflective or accurately reflective of, of Scot- Scotland's role in the world, both historically and currently, we trade with people and we play host to people from all all of the globe. We've had colonial relationships with them where people from the former colonies now are established in Britain and have been for a couple of hundred years, as well as just um, people from Europe and, and the Americas um, who've either gone and come back or with, with new influences. And then, of course, there's the ease of holiday travel these days where people are, are travelling abroad and coming back and bringing all the influences. And now we have the expectations that you walk around a high street supermarket and you find things from anywhere you like. And I feel that if we're going to be honest about what Scotland's food culture is you can't just edit it to do the chocolate box salmon packaging version (laughs) of Scotland you have to be open and honest about your influences from everywhere and it's also just a very enjoyable way to cook I mean there is a lot of joy I think in your cooking it's fun it's beautiful it's textured every course was something fun and that's the thing about haggis, neeps and tatties, that iconic Scottish dish. The neeps, which are what we call Swedes, the, the big orange turnips, originally from Sweden. Potatoes, originally from Peru. Haggis, full of um, black pepper and allspice, which are from anywhere but here. And even the idea of making a pudding with your scraps of meat and stuffing it and offal and stuffing it inside an animal's stomach is not unique to Scotland. That appears all over the globe from, mm. you know, Asia to North America. There are versions of, of something like this. So, you know, this is this is what we hold up for as, as a sort of nostalgic Scottish food. But actually... <laughs> is representative of a Scotland that has always been very well connected to the rest of the world and remains that way. And of course, I had to ask Pam one of my favourite questions. When did you first realise that pepper was from somewhere else and not grown here? That's a really interesting question. I don't even know if I can answer it accurately. As we were talking about earlier, like imagined histories and how your own imagination and where you're at right now in your life influences your memories. I mean, I know that when I was a child, I didn't know where anything came from. So obviously there was a point where I learned it. But I'd suspect it was probably part of just growing as a cook, 
and I've cooked since I was quite young. I became a vegetarian as a teenager and my mum said, well, that's fine, but you're going to have to cook for yourself. I'm not doing two meals a day, so, and your dad won't eat vegetables, so. <laughs> Very Scottish. That was all part of the process of just learning where anything came from. To end our conversation, I wanted to know how Pam was envisaging the future, what new stories she would like to see us create. I'd like people to take environmental benevolence, like social equity, things like that, into consideration when we value the things that we buy and cook and eat. And perhaps just connect a little bit more to the things that are actually happening around you. It means things like buying local food from local farms and all the benefits they're in, which is, you know, a bit more than just food miles. It's also about, you know, supporting local economies and making your own locality richer by keeping the money circulating in it and all these things that we know. And if we can learn to value things like just be more conscious of where things are coming from and how they got there in the first place and valuing the things that came while providing benefits to communities rather than rinsing them for all they were worth, be that communities abroad or communities here. Perhaps whether it's a concerted effort by governments and marketing boards or whether it's actually just something that's led by people learning to tell stories that will benefit the people in the future as well as bringing joy to the people who are cooking and eating now. After leaving the restaurant, I walked across the bay to the old castle Lachlan and stood in the open courtyard. Castles are fascinating spaces. They were centres of feudal power and built to display that power to all who gazed upon it. Even as I stood in its ruins, the thick stone walls that were left felt like they would last forever. This castle was built in the 1400s when, at the other end of the island in London, the fraternity of Peppers had already become the company of grocers and the British Isles were thriving in their global trade. This castle... A plaque on the remains of the castle wall tells me belongs to the McLaughlin clan, a family that immigrated from Ireland to Scotland in the 11th century. It was built to protect the bay and control travel through and on Loch Vine. There is a sense of movement in this place, and I can easily imagine that this castle operates as a fort. What travel were they controlling? Was it goods going to and from the rest of the isle? Was the port of Glasgow bringing in produce from the rest of Europe that the clan wanted to move through their part of the country? Pam's restaurant is called Inver, which means between two waters, a place where one body of water meets another. This is referring to the fact this bay is the meeting point of the Lachlan River and Loch Vine. This castle and Pam's restaurant sit on either side of this meeting point. Both are, or were, a home and anchor as well as places where people come to and move through. It feels like the past talking to the present. Water, travel and movement are all reminiscent of Sarawak to me. As I mentioned at the start of the journey to Scotland, in the landscape I felt echoes of Borneo. And now here at this castle, where these waters meet, I am again reminded of Sarawak. And specifically, my family farm where I first encountered Pepper. My family farm is called Nanga Majau, which means mouth of the Majau River. It too is a meeting place of two flowing bodies of water, Majau and Balai rivers. It is very quiet in the courtyard. I look out as winds skim across the bay and ripple the water. But I feel protected in this medieval structure. It feels remote and calm. 
and is akin to when I was a child and looked out the farm window, across the pepper trees and onto the river below. Thank you for listening to Episode 7 of Taste of Place. Special thanks to Pam Brunton for speaking to me about her concept landscape cuisine and her cooking and sharing a delicious meal. I'd like to thank my producer, Catherine Yang, audio editor, Diana Kapulong, researcher, Caroline Merrifield, and intern, Ashley Choi. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer, Celine Glazier, sound engineer, Max Cuddlechuck, music director, Catherine Yang, managing producer, Marvin Yeur, associate producer, Quentin Lebeau, Production coordinator, Shabnam Fadosi, Production assistant, Maha Saned. And publicist, Melissa Horton. Theme music created by Catherine Yang. And cover art created by Whetstone art director, Alex Bowman. You can learn more about this podcast on whetstoneradio.com. On Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio. On TikTok at Whetstone Media. And subscribe to our Spotify and YouTube channel, Whetstone Media for more podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.